So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be continuing on in what in most Bibles is called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, It's Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats near you. And Matthew is the first book of what's called the New Testament. There's an index in the front of that Bible, so just turn there and we're going to be looking at chapter 5 this morning and just three verses, uh, verses 27 through 30. So turn there. Um, As we've looked at this sermon, I've said before that uh, this is Jesus bringing his disciples to him. And they have already come to that understanding that he is the Messiah King. He is the one that was to come. And they've repented. They've turned around. They've reoriented their thinking from running their own lives and living in their own way to now follow King Jesus. And now in this sermon, he begins to explain basically what it means to live as a citizen of his kingdom to live in submission to Jesus Christ as the Lord and King of our lives. And as we get into this passage this morning, this is probably going to be one of the most countercultural passages that Jesus deals with. And his attitude towards this specific area is going to run counter to probably 99% of what we have heard in our world today, what we have kind of grown up with and been marinated with in our culture. Maybe other than worry, this is probably one area of life where most of us have been impacted in a negative way, where we have stumbled in a way. So I want to approach this with real gentleness and an awareness that, you know, very few of us have dealt with this area and come out unscathed. So I want to walk that fine line between us all feeling that sense of deep condemnation because we, many of us, have blown it in this area so many times but also holding up Jesus' standard of this is what it means to be a human being, a new human being created in the image of God, living for the sake of his glory and in his kingdom. We live in the midst of the culture where the story of our culture basically is, is we have just kind of evolved to the place that we are. We are here and the role of life is to maximize our pleasure and to minimize our pain where any desire that I have, as long as I don't tread on anybody else, needs to be fulfilled, right? And there's no real human desire. They can't rate them as good or bad. They just are, right? And, and what we're told in our world today is you just need to follow your heart, follow your desires. And that's been what, basically, I've been told since I've been young, that what is good for you is what feels good to you, right? That is the determination. And we live in the midst of a culture where we are approached with websites and with apps on our phone where satisfying our desires can be as quick as a swipe one way or another. And there's all sorts of other people out there that just want to satisfy these desires as well. And as Richard Dawkins say, we are just here. We have a selfish gene and we're just to propagate that gene. And what we live for is just the propagation of that gene. And that's fine and good. The sexual impulse is just a biological drive, like any other biological drive, like eating or sleeping, and you just need to satisfy that. And we've been told basically since Freud that if you don't satisfy that, you're repressing that, and that's going to be psychologically damaging for you for the rest of your life. 
We live in a culture where, this is two years ago, approximately $15 billion was spent on pornography just in our nation alone. Supposedly worldwide, that's close to $100 billion. To give you a comparison, Hollywood in that same year made $11.1 billion. The NBA was $7.4 billion. Football still takes precedence at $14 billion, right? One website, um, I guess it's a porn site, that uh, has attracted 28.5 billion hits monthly, right? And we used to say this is just a problem with men in our culture, but they keep stats on this, and I guess 32% of the sites of the people visit are females. So this is not exclusively a male problem anymore. In my generation, basically the mantra that I was, is he who dies with the most toys wins. Now I think the mantra is more he who, or she who dies with the most sexual experiences wins. So satisfying this part of our life is kind of the highest and the, the most noble good, the thing you have to be about if you're going to live as a healthy human being. Everything is okay as long as it is consensual. That's the culture that we're living in right now. That's the marinade that we are immersed in at all times. And it's interesting, you know, sometimes my kids will listen to old music from my growing up days and songs I'd really love. It's like, oh, no, man, don't, don't listen, because you realize this has been a theme for a long time in our culture. How many songs are about a sexual relationship or about a romantic relationship being the be-all and the end-all, and this is what and where life is found, right? And that is everywhere. We just cannot avoid it. Just a little personal history. My first exposure to pornography was when I was in first grade. We had just moved from Chicago to New York. My dad was transferred there. There was a kid in my first grade class, Kevin, I won't mention his last name. We're invited over to his house for a birthday party, and we're sitting around playing Go Fish or something like that, and the mom came out and she gave each of us a Playboy magazine and said, this is what men do. They play poker and they look at this kind of stuff. This is what is life, right? And that's 53 years ago, right? And now, if you have a phone, you have an adult bookstore on your phone everywhere you go. This is an issue that has impacted all of us. And it's not like this is a new issue. I think there's an intensity with which this issue comes to us in our world that is different than before because of the internet, because of all that kind of stuff, but it's been around for a long, long time. And in the midst of this world that values this so highly, Jesus has some words to say, and let's hear what he says, starting in verse 27 of Matthew 5. You have heard it said that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Again, Jesus quoting from the Old Testament, this is the seventh commandment. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. This is a reading of God's word. It's great that there's nothing controversial or challenging about this passage, right? So we read this, and again, before digging into this passage, I just want to remind us that this is an ethic that is given to the followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus was talking to his disciples, those that had made a commitment, we want to follow you, King Jesus. And I think sometimes as the church, we expect the world around us to live based on an ethic of the kingdom that they don't even acknowledge the king and to say that is like, what is this? This is craziness. This is so repressive. This is so out of date. So Jesus is speaking to his followers and he says, this is how I've designed human beings, what I want human beings to be about. But in essence, I think he's focused on his disciples. So if you're here and you haven't embraced Jesus Christ, a lot of this is going to sound really bizarre. But Jesus is talking to us as his followers saying, this is the kind of life that I want you to live as you battle with sexual desire in your life. And he said, you'd heard it said, this is back from the Ten Commandments, right? Don't commit adultery. Don't hop into bed with someone who's not your spouse, okay? And as we've been going through this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has said, man, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. And it's like, how in the world does that happen? And we talked about murder and anger last week, that Jesus is internalizing the law, right? He's taking the external and says, okay, that's good. I'm not saying go commit adultery, but what I'm saying is I want to get to the core and the heart that lies below that law, and it's always an issue of the heart. Nobody murders unless there's first hatred there. And we talked about those two words for hatred. One is that, or anger, that one that flames up instantly like pine straw and then dies down. And that's not the word Jesus used, but he used that anger that you just sit on and it smolders and smolders like the pecan logs. And I went out last week on Tuesday. We had the Harvest Festival on, on Saturday and stirred up the fire a little bit and then whoosh, the flame started. And I said, what a beautiful illustration of just holding on to anger and just letting it smolder and then just a little nudge one way or another, and then, man, the flames come out again. So Jesus was going to the heart of the matter there saying, okay, deal with that anger. Don't nurse those grudges. And he's doing the same thing with kind of the, the issue of adultery here. He says, I want you to go to the heart. You're not going to jump into bed with someone unless there's been some mental stuff that's gone on first in your own head. And he says, okay, you've heard it said, this is great, don't commit adultery. Yeah, I'm all about that, but as my followers, I want you to go beyond that even. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And again, we can read that, and most of us can feel a whole lot of guilt and shame and condemnation, right? And this is talking to men here, but I don't think it's limited to men. In that culture, it was a very male-dominated culture, and women were pretty much covered up in bags at that point in time, so the focus was there. But that has changed radically. So you're going to say, well, I'm a woman, so this doesn't apply to me. No, I think this does apply to you in our day and age, that Jesus is seeking to locate the source of this problem in our hearts not necessarily just in 
the external activity that happens. He says, we need to go back and we need to look at the issue of the heart. That's where it starts. And again, as we look at this, Jesus is not talking about that normal feeling of sexual desire or attraction that God has built into all of us as human beings. And I think sometimes we read this and if we feel any attraction to anybody, it's all of a sudden it's like, okay, I must be sinning there. I don't think that is what Jesus is talking about. And again, I think sometimes the church, in a reaction to where our culture is, has gone the other way and said, oh, sex is a bad thing. It's something you don't talk about ever. It's in the dark and you don't want to bring it out. And no, that's not the truth of the word of God. If you go all the way to the first chapter of Genesis, and this is what it says, so God created man, this is verse 27 of Genesis 1, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in it for fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it wasn't just good. It was very good. You see that good, good, good six times. And then the seventh time that it's mentioned in Genesis 1, it's very good. And very good refers to God creating male and female in their gender with all of their equipment and saying this is a very good thing. And the first command that God gives to this couple is go and be fruitful and multiply. And you know what that means. That's the first command that God gives to this couple that he has created so God is not anti-sex. He has created sex, and he has created sexual desire, and it's a good thing, and it's a beautiful thing. There's a whole book of Scripture that deals with the beauty and the power of sexual desire, the Song of Solomon, right? <laughs> Every year, Jesus would have heard this read in the synagogue during Passover week. It was read every year. So God is not a prude about sexuality. He created it, and he said, it's a beautiful thing. Song of Solomon, you don't have to turn there, but I'm gonna, in chapter eight, there's kind of a summary passage that deals with this whole beautiful creation of God. Verse six says, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. And all those that are, oh, that's so beautiful. Everything is despised, but this love is powerful. And if we look at sexuality and human sexuality, the author of the Song of Solomon says it's like a fire. And fire is a good thing, but it's a dangerous thing, right? Within appropriate boundaries in the right place, fire is something that brings warmth and health and life. 
But outside of those boundaries, it's something that can bring death and destruction. Look at Northern California and Oregon this summer. You know, somebody starts a campfire and one little spark goes out and then the wind is blowing and then billions of dollars of damage because that fire gets out of control. So God is not anti-sex. Jesus is not anti-sex. But Jesus is saying this is a beautiful thing that God has created and it needs to be cherished and it needs to operate within the boundaries that God has provided and that's with one man and a woman for life and a commitment that they make together. And in that relationship, that is a beautiful thing. It's something that should be celebrated and Christians can say, yeah, sex is a really good thing. God designed it in that way. And so having that sexual desire is not a bad thing. We would not be celebrating all these weddings recently if that desire had not been built into humanity, right? And so we look at this, and I want to say that just having those desires and feeling those feelings is not something that is wrong, because I think a lot of people are walking around with a whole lot of false guilt because they feel attracted in that way to someone. And the reality is that Jesus says here that it's, looking at a woman with lustful intent in order to lust. So the issue is not so much the look, but it's the lust that's intended that actually precedes that look. And I don't want to grammar nerd out at you here, but there's a construction here in the Greek. It's the same construction at the beginning of chapter 6. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So why are the Pharisees doing their acts of righteousness to be seen by other people? And so it's the same construction here. Why is that person looking? It's in order to lust. So it's not the fact that the look is bad. When you look and you feel attraction for another person, that is not in and of itself wrong. That's just how God has wired us up. That's how we are created and how we're made. Psychologists study this stuff in terms of brain chemistry, right? It's, you feel those initial rush of feelings the same way that you kind of feel hunger when you walk into a, a room that there's been a good meal prepared and you're feeling, oh, that does taste really good. So God has made beautiful people in the world, right? I worked in a bank for a while and in one of my training rotations, I worked for a guy named Mike and uh, Mike was about 6'2". He was part Cherokee Indian and uh, from what every woman I talked to, this guy was stunning looking, right? And we would go out fishing and you'd go in some place and it's like, everybody notices Mike, nobody notices you. I'm like, 23, like, what, what am I, chopped liver? And it's like, yeah, compared to Mike, I was chopped liver, right? And, and some people win the genetic lottery in terms of attraction and what a culture values. Every time I get on to look at a YouTube, there's some guy that's on there selling some supplement out by his pool in California. He has not a single body hair on his whole body. And, you know, he's just there. He's like, oh, what is that there for? To entice that lust, right? There are some people that are physically beautiful, and Scripture recognizes that. Joseph was supposedly handsome. He was a good-looking guy, right? Potiphar's wife comes after him because of that. The scripture says that Rachel was beautiful in face and in form. So scripture's not saying that this is a bad thing, that there are beautiful people in the world. And when we see a beautiful person, there's that instantaneous, this just happens, the oxytocin is released in our brains, and there's an attraction that's there, and I think sometimes we feel bad for having that. 
But that is not what Jesus is talking about here. The first reason is because this word look, in our world is just, okay, it's a look, and the point is not, okay, I've looked, and there's this instantaneous kind of reaction that I have, but this, it's in a present participle, so it's an ongoing, continuing look. So the idea here is more of a stare. And Martin Luther said something that everybody quotes when they preach this passage, basically, is this, don't draw the bowstring of Jesus' teaching too taut here. He says, you cannot keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can certainly keep them from making a nest in your hair or plucking off your nose. So the reality is, okay, it's not that first look, but it's the second, it's the third, and the fourth. And it's those looks that are purposely done with the intent of kind of focusing on the sexual desire that you have for that person. To feel that desire, that's kind of like the thumos, the instantaneous rage that can build up in us. But it's then what we do with that desire when it comes. And so I want to kind of provide some grace for people as you walk through this world and there's an attraction that you feel not to feel instantly, okay, I'm condemned already. And I've heard guys say this, well, I've already committed adultery with her in my heart, so I may as well follow through. And, and it's like, no, that's not what Jesus is saying. Any more than he's saying, don't get angry. Well, if you've gotten angry, you may as well go ahead and kill the person. You know, we wouldn't say that. So to recognize here, Jesus is saying, okay, this is a reality and it's the reality that I want to get to is that this stuff always starts in the heart. And that's what I want you to focus on. It's an issue of the heart here. And the point Jesus is making is don't focus on those things that are designed to create lust in you for an illicit relationship that you should not be involved in. When we sin... To me, the will has to be involved in that sin. Those feelings that come just as we walk through life, I can't control that. I can't control my feelings. They just pop up. Anger can just pop up. It's what I do with that anger. Do I choose to nurse that anger? Do I choose to focus on that anger? Do I choose to play those tapes in my head with anger or with lust? What do I do with that? In James 1, if I could get there, it says this, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's the same word there. We hear lust and it's almost exclusively sexual in nature in our vocabulary, but the word literally just means strong desire. In scriptures, it can be a positive desire or a negative desire. Most often, it's a negative, but if you read Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, it says, he who desires the office of elder or overseer lusts after a good thing. Now, we're not gonna say being an elder is something that, oh, it's really bad to lust for. That's a good thing to desire, right? But here, he's saying each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Those desires come up when I feel those desires, then, okay, there's something I got to do with that, right? I'm not going to let those desires lure and entice me down the road. He 
Because then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. There's a process there. There's a choice that's made. There's a focusing there on that desire. And he says, when that desire then becomes conceived, it gives birth to sin. So those desires come in all of our lives. And we are kind of the first generation that has been told, basically, whatever you desire, that's wonderful. You just, you be you. Throughout history in the world, people have recognized, man, there's some desires that I have, they're, they're really good desires, and there's some desires that I have, man, those things need to be beaten down with a stick. That's not gonna be healthy for me or others around me, right? If I wanna sit down and eat like two pounds of french fries, that's a desire that I have. I love french fries, give me enough ketchup, and I would do that. But I recognize, you know what, that desire is probably not a good thing. I need to rein that desire in. Scripture talks about putting to death these desires in our lives that don't lead us to a good place. And so Jesus is focusing our attention on the heart as we go through this kind of hyper-sexualized world that we're in. Those temptations will come. Those desires will come in the world that we're in. And it's not sinful to have those desires. It's sinful for what we do with those desires after they come. And so Jesus says, basically, if you look with a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery with her in her heart. And there's two ways that this can be translated. And one can be it's the focus is on the guy looking in terms of lusting and fueling that lust in his own heart. There's another equally valid way of looking at this, and this was a a guy named Don Carson who's a very conservative scholar, says if you're looking at the woman in order to focus and have her feel lust, So more of the flirtatious look. You're looking at that woman in order to kind of entice her and say, why don't you come into this relationship with me? It can be taken either way. And scholars are on both sides of the coin there. But the idea is there's a volitional choice in either instance where you're trying to enter into this relationship. It's a thing that you've conceived in your head and it says, okay, I want this and I'm gonna continue to focus on this and what do I need to do to make this a reality in my life. And so Jesus is saying, don't go there. Curb those desires when they first come. The desire here for lust precedes any look. You have that look, that sexual desire rises up in you And then the question is, what am I going to do with that? Jesus says that becomes adultery of the heart when then you begin to focus on that and not say, okay, I feel this feeling. I'm a human being. I need to refocus in another area. I need to leave this. Scripture talks often about fleeing youthful lusts. It doesn't say Keep looking, you, you probably got the resources in Christ to handle that, just you know, see how close to the edge you can get without getting burned, right? It never says that about this. It says run, run, run away. And we don't have to look long or hard, even at the church, even at the evangelical church, to see how many people, how many godly leaders have fallen in this area. And so... How do we deal with this in our hypersexualized world? Jesus' answer, 
personal maiming. <laughs> That's how we handle this, right? He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members and your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. So is Jesus recommending actual physical maiming as a solution to this issue that hits so many of us in our world? I don't think he is, but there are people in the history of the church that have taken this seriously. Origen, probably the one of the most famous ones in the third century, he castrated himself in submission to this. The Council of Nicaea in 325 forbade that practice. Think, I don't think that's what Jesus was getting at. And I agree with that council. Why? Because Jesus, if you gouge out your right eye, you've still got your left one, right? If you cut off your right hand, you've still got your left hand. And he just said the issue is not so much with the external activity, it's the issue of the heart. So Jesus often teaches in this way. He'll say something shocking, and it's like, what? What does he say? What? And he's doing that to wake people up, and he's doing that here to say, this is how seriously I want you to take this issue. Deal seriously, even ruthlessly, with these things that lead you into sexual sin. And this is likely going to produce some discomfort in our lives. There's so much available in this arena in our world today, right? And like I said, so much is available even in that thing that we keep in our pockets. And so, how do I deal seriously with those things that lead me into sin? If that stupid thing in your pocket is over and over causing you to stumble and fall in this area, you know what? There were these things called flip phones. You can get them, and I know guys that have them, and I know they have them because I cannot keep this in my pocket and maintain my purity before God, and I wanna do that, so I may be considered the lamest person in the room because I don't have an iPhone 12, and I've got my Motorola flip phone, but hey, this is helpful for me. There's guys that I know that have a program called Covenant Eyes that will send a list of every website they visit to a friend. Because they know, okay, if I've got that control there, that will be helpful in keeping me away from stuff because those things have often caused me to sin. And to recognize that there are issues in our lives where we will stumble, where we will fall. And this area, I think, especially in our culture, and if you look at any statistics within the church, is something that is chewing up Christians and spitting us out right and left. And Jesus is not uptight about sexuality. He's not, but he's saying sex is a beautiful creation for this relationship of marriage that's meant to produce other little creatures that then will follow God. It's a beautiful thing. I've designed it. But when it gets out of control, it can destroy people. Look at the Me Too movement. Look at sexual abuse if you don't think that this thing can get out of control and burn in ways that you never anticipated. And people get into it and think, man, I've, I, can, I can control this. I've got it under control. 
And then, as Scripture says, they end up enslaved to this kind of stuff. And Jesus says, I don't want you enslaved to this stuff. You know your own heart. I don't. And so I'm not going to stand up here and say, these are the things that you have to do. This is the type of entertainment that you cannot look at. This is the type of art that you cannot look at. Jesus, I don't think, gives this overall, okay, this is what I want you to be. I want you to move into Amish country, get rid of all technology, and live there. Because trust me, Amish people have a problem with lust as well. People had this problem before technology came around, and it's an issue, right? Jesus doesn't say, cut off your hand. He says, if it's causing you to sin, deal with it. Some people are able to face certain things and they're not tempted by it and it's okay. Other people very sensitive in this area can look at it and it's devastating for them, right? I can watch violence on TV. I can listen to bad language. It's probably not great for me, but I don't walk out of there ready to smack somebody or all sorts of nonsense comes out of my mouth. But if I see nudity portrayed, there's certain things, that's not a good place for me to go. This was the area that kept me away from God for the longest time in my life. And it's an area by God's grace that he has provided victory and freedom, but that has been a long process. But I want to let you know there's hope out there. And if you're wrestling with this, Jesus does not hate you. He wants to heal you and he wants you to bring, bring freedom to your life right now. So recognize this has probably hit everybody in this room that's under a particular age because this stuff has just been ever-present now. I read this week that the first exposure to pornography now in our culture is at 11 years old. That's when it's hitting. And if that technology was available when I was a teenager and going through that, I, I thank God that it wasn't. And I pray for you all that are in that and to recognize, okay, we need to really get serious about dealing with this stuff because it is spitting people out and chewing up their lives. So look seriously at the choices that you're making. What are you allowing yourself to look at? What are you allowing yourself to read? All those kind of things. And if something is in your life causing you to sin in this area, are you willing to deal ruthlessly with that thing and say, I just cannot have this in my life right now? That's the point Jesus is trying to make. He's not saying, I want you to mutilate yourself. He's saying, I want you to deal seriously with these things that cause you to sin. Because where it starts is in the heart. It doesn't start with an actual person. It starts in the heart, and then that often moves to an actual person. Again, I think it's beautiful that we have communion this morning. Because I, like you, and most of us in here have struggled in this area in our walk with Jesus. And to recognize, you know what, that there's grace and forgiveness and freedom as we come to Christ. So we're going to come to the table this morning. I'm going to ask the servers to come up right now to celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ died to provide forgiveness for all of our sins, and that includes sexual sins. So if you're here this morning and this has been an area that you've struggled with your whole life, I want you to just be honest enough and bring it to God and say, God, I need your cleansing. I need your forgiveness. I need your help in this area in my life. And I'm also going to urge you, 
if you're struggling in this area, to talk to somebody that's a mature brother or sister in Christ to get some help in this area. Like I said, I know some people, like with alcohol, they come to Christ and that desire is instantaneously taken away. And some people, this is the same thing. But most people that I talk to, this is going to be an ongoing struggle in life. So we need the help of one another. We're called to a community to hold one another up to this standard of pursuing purity in our lives, to be a different type of person in this world that doesn't objectify people and think, okay, that person is here for my pleasure. And I don't really care that much about them as long as they satisfy my pleasure. And we can name that whatever we want to name it, but the reality is we are not operating out of this greatest commandment that Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. I want the best for you. I don't want to use you. So as you come to Christ, be honest with him. If this is an area that you've struggled with, And if you need someone to walk alongside you in the midst of this struggle, please talk to a friend. If you don't know who that would be, please email me, get in touch with me. I may not be the one that meets with you, but I can put you in touch with others that are going through this process and are seeking purity and seeking to be pure before the Lord in this area. It is something that is serious in the church and it is serious in scripture. Jesus wouldn't use those outrageous metaphors if he wasn't saying this is an important thing to deal with in life. It's not an area that, as human beings, we can toy around with and say, hey, this, I, can, I can handle this. The reality is that God has designed this as a beautiful gift. And I think one of the reasons that Jesus was so intense about this was he was seeing that beautiful gift was being distorted and destroyed. And saying, this is what I've made. I've made you to be humans that relate to one another. And this is this beautiful picture that I've given of Christ's love for the church. The most intense human passion is meant to picture Christ's love for the church. And then when we just drive, it's like, well, it's like any other biological drive. It it cheapens it. Scripture has a super high view of sexuality, not because it's uptight, but because it's this significant thing. But I also want to say, this world has elevated this to this is the be-all and end-all. Jesus was a single guy. He lived a completely fulfilled life. What our culture is saying, if you don't have this, you can't live a fulfilled life, that's nonsense. If God has called you to a life of signalist, that's a beautiful thing. And I think so often in the church, it's like, oh, when are you gonna get married? When are you gonna get married? It's like, well, I don't know if God's calling me. That's wonderful. (laughs) Scripture says that's actually a preferable place to be if you can handle that. So, recognize that Jesus wants us to take this really seriously. 